Section 14 of U.S. Money versus Corporation Currency Aldrich Plan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. U.S. Money versus Corporation Currency Aldrich Plan by Alfred Owen Crozier. Chapter 12 panics natural or artificial inside facts about 1907 panic the aldrich plan is loudly advertised as a sure cure-all for every panic the country needs a preventative rather than cure this can be provided only if we discover and disclose the cause or causes of these repeated calamities are panics natural and therefore inevitable or artificial and for that reason unnecessary and avoidable. Do they just happen, or are they sent? Are they the work of providence or of man? If panics are not a visitation of divine wrath, if they are man-made, who does it, and for what reason? Investigation leads us first to ascertain where panics start. History and common knowledge answer as to that. It is conceded that every American panic began in Wall Street, why? Are they accidental or incendiary? If accidental, due to financial conditions likely to produce panic, we can avoid panics only by removing these panic-inciting conditions. To do that, we must go where they exist, to Wall Street. We must learn why these conditions prevail, who creates them, and for what purpose. On the other hand, if panic is incendiary, deliberately started, we must find out just who does it, how it is done, and for what object or objects. This done, it will be relatively easy to find and apply an effective remedy. The first overt act at the beginning of every financial panic is the violent and sudden contraction of bank credit, the wholesale and imperative calling in of bank loans. This always will cause panic instantly. This panic-inciting step by the banks may be involuntary or voluntary. If deposits are withdrawn by depositors through fear or otherwise, cash reserves shrink and banks must contract loans about ten times such withdrawals. This is involuntary and not the fault of the banks. Big business thus can force the banks to cause panic through violent contraction of bank loans caused by the simultaneous withdrawal by the interests of bank deposits in large volume. If panic results from unnecessary and general cooperative contraction of bank loans voluntarily done by the banks to put pressure upon businessmen, generally for the purpose of inducing them to influence Congress to pass legislation beneficial to the banks, or for the purpose of steering the course of politics and influencing a national or state election, it is a deliberate crime for which the banks and guilty bankers should be severely punished. In seeking to prove the guilt of a prisoner against whom there is circumstantial and no direct evidence, the first thing is to establish that the accused had a guilty motive, that he got some profit or advantage as the result of the crime committed. Circumstantial evidence, often, is as unerring and convincing as direct, pointing irresistibly and logically to the guilty party. Many a man has been justly convicted and hung for murder exclusively on circumstantial proof. Once the prosecution conclusively shows that the accused benefited by the crime, the prisoner is more than half convicted. 
Practically, he must then prove an alibi or produce other evidence of innocence. By this legal standard, let us test and judge Wall Street, accused and indicted as the criminal author of panics, and now arraigned on trial in the court of public opinion. The specific count under present consideration is the one charging that Wall Street caused the panic of 1907. Seeking a motive, let us first show what that panic accomplished and who profited thereby. The New York, New Hampshire, and Hartford Railroads obtained control of the Porchester Railroad that soon would have been a completed competing line between New York and Boston if the panic of 1907 had not forced the promoters to sell when banks and trust companies called their loans secured by Porchester Railroad securities. The Morse Coastwise Shipping Trust, that had become a serious and successful competitor of that same railroad by cheap water route, was wrecked and ruined by such panic and sold out for a nominal price to interests said to be affiliated with that railroad. The Georgia Central Railroad had a similar experience with like results. Morse committed the unpardonable Wall Street sin of quietly buying up control on his own hook of a string of the smaller New York banks with the alleged object of using their deposits and credit to manipulate his ice company and other high finance flotations. He had seen others do the same thing, men higher in finance than he. Why should he not do it? He tried it and was sentenced to serve a 15-year term in Atlanta prison. And the financial world now knows it is not wise for any individual to try to corral any New York banks and build up a financial power independent of certain well-known powers that be. Of course Morse broke the law and deserved his fate, but the woods are full of others guilty of all the same crimes, except the crime of trying to avoid playing second fiddle to the great masters of Wall Street. For years the big trust companies of New York paid higher interest rates for deposits than were paid by national banks. The trust companies, such as the Knickerbocker, the Lincoln, and the Trust Company of America, were state institutions and not subject to the reserve and other restrictions of the National Bank Act. Millions of dollars of deposits thus were enticed away from the banks and into the trust companies. These companies had many sources of profit denied to banks. They were rapidly growing large, rich, and powerful. They were handling underwriting, financing many profitable flotations. They were largely owned and run by different men than those all-powerful in the big banks. The banks increasingly became jealous, envious, sore at the trust companies. They would not allow trust companies to join the clearinghouse, forcing each to clear its checks in the clearinghouse every day through some bank member. But the trust companies refused to lower the rate enjoyed by depositors, and their deposits kept climbing. All at once, something happened, and presto change. The deposits of the trust companies shrunk, and the deposits of the banks increased some $50 million in a few days, or enough to decrease the credit loaning power of the trust companies and increase that of the banks more than a half billion dollars. What did it? Panic. The panic of October 1907. How did it happen? Let us see. Times were fine. Prosperity was in the air, everywhere. Business was expanding, demand increasing, prices high, profits big. 
Everybody was making money and happy. Factories were running full-time or overtime. Everybody had a job at good wages. Surely the people had followed the pursuit of happiness, had caught it, and all, men, women, and children, were enjoying it to the full. It is alleged that one night a quiet conference of some of the big ones, interested in the banks, was held in New York to devise ways and means. Writer has it on the word of the editor of one of the great New York dailies that late one night an official of one of the big financial institutions came personally to the newspaper offices with an article for publication stating that a certain big bank, named, had decided to refuse to further clear for a certain big trust company, named, because it considered the trust company shaky and unsound. The news was sensational, and when published with big, black, scare headlines, of course it frightened trust company depositors into runs, not only on that, but on other trust companies. Most of the vast withdrawals went into the banks. Very grave and ugly charges against very high financiers and big banks have been privately made, and some things have become public. For instance, Oakley Thorne, president of the Trust Company of America, one of the large institutions made to grossly suffer, is reported to have publicly testified at the Steel Trust Congressional hearing that the Panic of 1907 was artificial, deliberately caused or stimulated, and named the high interests responsible. Wharton Barker, a very prominent, respected, and wealthy retired banker and capitalist of Philadelphia, is reported as testifying in November 1911 at the hearing of the Senate Interstate Commerce Committee that he had definite information and proof that the Panic of 1907 was deliberately planned in advance and purposely caused, naming the parties, the time, and the place. The trust companies begged for mercy and help. Mercy is free, but help in Wall Street only comes in exchange for quid pro quo. The runs continued, it is alleged, until control of part or all of the stock of big trust companies was surrendered to the powerful interests behind the big banks, and until the trust companies gave up possession of certain stocks held as collateral by the trust companies to secure large loans that the runs and the panic forced the trust companies to call in, then the runs are said to have stopped and the panic soon was over. It is alleged that control of the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, the most powerful and dangerous competitor and rival of the Steel Trust, was obtained during the shuffle in the midst of the panic of 1907. Why should not Wall Street have panics once in a while when they shower upon the great masters of high finance so many rich and glorious blessings obtainable in no other way? And if Providence won't send a panic, why not make one, when it is so easy and will be so useful and profitable? If insiders caused the panic, of course they knew when it would happen. Did they first sell short and thus reap the billions of dollars the public lost by shrinkage of quotation prices on the 20 to 30 billion dollars of listed securities? Wall Street banks flatly repudiated their obligations during the panic, refusing to give up demand deposits comprising cash reserves of banks all over the country, keeping the money so that they could supply cash or credit to the big operators who were buying at half their value 
Securities of panic force the public to sell. Possession is nine points of law when it comes to money in a panic, and the insiders need it. Panics often go further than intended and may endanger even insiders. 1907 did so. Even the big operators became frightened when the people kept withdrawing, hoarding, and hiding deposits. They appealed to the government to help the people by helping relieve and save the banks of the country. The Treasury responded by turning over about $120 million of public monies to the Wall Street banks. It is alleged that instead of properly helping country banks by immediately releasing reserve money arbitrarily and illegally detained, much of the government's money was salted and kept by the Wall Street banks and their loans to insiders for stock speculations greatly increased. But the most important advantage expected to be derived by Wall Street and its banks from the Panic of 1907 is a great privately owned central bank, a huge private money trust to monopolize and forever control the entire public currency and the deposited revenues of the United States. The people always have been jealous of their money supply. They never have taken kindly to control of the entire monetary circulation, the lifeblood of all trade, by private parties for private profit. Nothing but extreme emergency and the most urgent necessity could possibly induce the people to consent to that course by Congress. As Wall Street was bound to get control of the public currency, what more natural thing than that it should cause a panic to inflict upon the people distressful conditions that comprise extreme emergency and thus induce them to consent to a private central bank and surrender to it of a billion of public currency as an urgent necessity and the only possible way of avoiding future panics. That's the big game. If the interests caused the panic of 1907, the chief object was to make it serve as an object lesson to the people and induce them blindly to drive Congress into granting a private monopoly of the entire money supply of the people to a central bank corporation owned by banks controlled by Wall Street. And if it is necessary to have another panic as a new object lesson to pinch and drive the public into hurrying favorable congressional action on the Aldrich plan, there is not the slightest doubt that Wall Street can cause it on short notice, and those who know or realize the daring and desperation of high finance and its determination to put the central bank through Congress at all hazard and whatever the cost do not doubt that it will cause another panic if necessary to force its will upon the country. For this reason, businessmen, no doubt, will think it the part of wisdom not to expand but to keep near shore with their financial sails snugly furled until Wall Street no longer has so much reason and temptation to start another panic. The Panic of October 1907 immediately preceded the introduction into Congress in December 1907 of a central bank bill based on the plan adopted by the New York Chamber of Commerce long before the panic or any public signs of panic were visible the bill being practically identical with what now is called the Aldrich Plan. When the greatest of all Wall Street organizations, that combine of the brains and power of the financial metropolis, the New York Chamber of Commerce, formulated its demand in 1906 for a central bank, 
It was not to stop or cure a panic. There was then no panic in sight and no natural conditions to cause one. Was the panic later worked up and staged after the insiders had put their own financial house in order and just before the session of Congress in which the central bank bill actually was first introduced in December 1907? Right after the panic, in November 1907, and just before Congress convened in December 1907, a meeting was held in Philadelphia at which prominent Wall Street bankers urged Congress to authorize a great private central bank as the only cure for panics. Was the panic of 1893 also deliberately caused by the same interests to help induce Congress to repeal the Sherman Silver Purchasing Act and adopt a gold standard, as has been charged? Was the panic of 1873 also artificial, caused to compel Congress to pass measures for resumption of specie payments and destruction of the greenbacks, that they might be replaced by banknote currency yielding regular profits to the banks, as demanded by Wall Street? Was the panic before the Civil War deliberately caused by high finance and its fierce struggle with President Andrew Jackson over the private central bank of that day? As each panic in history was coincident with some great, contemplated raid by Wall Street upon Congress to obtain legislative privileges and special advantages of priceless value and limitless power, is not panic, planned panic, the one great, invincible, and final instrument of torture applied on great occasions by Wall Street to the country in its continuous campaign of conquest? In a later chapter, inside facts about the bank-made panic of 1893 are given. Panics cause privation, poverty, sorrow, suffering, bankruptcy, embezzlement, larceny, suicide, and murder. Everybody knows this fact. Therefore, any man deliberately cooperating in acts that he knows will or may cause panic is both morally and legally guilty of causing every crime induced by such panic. If all or any one of past panics was deliberately caused or intensified by Wall Street interests, the most important work ahead for the people of the United States is to either shackle or exterminate the bandits of high finance. The Aldrich Plan would give such bandits power for 50 years to shackle the people and exterminate their business and prosperity. It grants to them by act of Congress a hunger hold over the people, their business and welfare that in effect will enable the soulless incorporated money power to establish in this country a condition of human slavery as real and more terrible and merciless than the black slavery abolished by Lincoln after the sacrifice of about a million lives. But instead of enslaving a few million Negroes, this may plunge permanently into direct or indirect bondage, the larger portion of the 94 million inhabitants of the United States, white and black. End of chapter 12